as a young woman, you think about the like the pressure of likability and the cult of likability, but you take it into a restaurant setting and it's true of men and women, your literal livelihood depends on how flirtatious, likable, what kind of line you towed with your customer. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of High Low with Emrata. This week, we have on my very dear friend who actually is staying with me, Stephanie Dandler. She wrote the best-selling novel, Sweet Bitter, which was actually turned into a TV show. She's one of the writers I admire the most. I reached out to her just out of nowhere, slid into her DMs, and we have since become very, very close friends. I'm so excited to talk to her about Sweet Bitter, Stray, her memoir, and the book she's currently working on, plus all the other things she's writing. Please welcome Stephanie Dandler. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of High Low with Emrata. Today we have on one of my dear, dear, I would say my best friend, Stephanie Dandler. You're one of the most important writers, contemporary writers. When I think of writing that I love and the world of literati, I think of you as being a fixture of it. You wrote, I sort of think most most famously, the book Sweet Bitter, which was then turned into, it was a bestseller for, sorry to make you do this, but for how long? <laughs> <laughs> for a long time, it was on the, the bestsellers It, it had list. a nice run. <laughs> it had a nice run. You then published your memoir, Stray, and now you're working on your third book, a novel entitled Smog. Is that the scoop? Did I just, has that ever been said publicly before? It hasn't been said. It's okay. been printed. Okay. But, you know. Great. I'm ready for you to announce it. I'm breaking the news. So thank you so much for being here. You are in New York City. You stayed it in my bed last night. So I sure did. We, we had, had to <laughs> commute to work together today. We had an old-fashioned slumber party. We were, like, whispering in bed, and then we were like, okay, we had to go to sleep. Okay. Yeah, I was wow, like, one more thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. I think we should first start with how our friendship came mm -hmm. to be, because I've talked about it a little bit, but I don't know if I always say who you are. I read a piece of yours in the Paris Review called The Unravelers. The Unravelers is an essay Stephanie writes about knitters and unravelers. She kind of categorizes women specifically into these two types of people. Knitters are women who something horrible happens, something good happens. They just weave it into this quilt and they're constantly knitting. They're constantly just picking up these things and knitting them through. And unravelers are, they're gluttonous and they do this sort of gluttonous move of just pulling at the threads and watching this beautiful quilt, whatever they've built for themselves or what other people have built for them, completely be taken apart. And she herself identifies as an unraveler. And it struck me to my core. It's still one of my favorite pieces of writing. And I was talking about it with my therapist. My favorite detail. <laughs> my therapist, Liz, shout out Liz, said to me, you're emailing all these writers. What about Stephanie Dandler? So I wrote you an email out of nowhere <laughs> where I, what did I even say? I have never revisited that email. You said that you loved that piece and that you had read it with your therapist and you just wanted to say hi. Okay. You didn't ask for anything. You were just kind of trying to establish a hello, I'm a fan of your work. Right. And I screenshot it and I sent it to my sister and I said, do you know who this person is? So funny. And she was like, you're a moron. 
I had met your sister in New York in 2013 or something, right? She responded with a photo of the two of you at a party. So funny. And I responded. And at a certain point, you said, I'm working on something. Would you be open to reading? And I said, absolutely. Which someone who was profiling you asked me if I do that often. She was like, so Emily reaches out and asks for you to read some of her work. Like, is that something you do? And I think she might have been implying that there was a kind of like favoritism Mm. or like that I was excited by who you were, but I actually do that fairly often. Yeah, I know that about you. It's really generous. I will read a work in progress for former assistants who are trying to write their spec script or people who want to send me a chunk of their novel. And so it wasn't totally random and out of the blue. I was like, yeah, of course, I'll take a look. Well, that's such a huge thing. A lot of people had told me people don't read writing. You can send it to agents. You can send it to whatever. It doesn't matter who you are or even if you are a brilliant writer, people just don't take the time. They'll say they're excited and then they'll forget about it. And I did experience a lot of that. Mm -hmm. It's really cool that you did it. And honestly, now I have even noticed people sending me their writing. It actually takes a lot of effort to remember to read it and, you know, think about it. And so it was very generous of you because you were also pregnant. Of course, very pregnant. And you were soon to be pregnant. But we didn't know that yet. No, no. We were a couple months away from being pregnant at the same time. And was it the pandemic? Uh, Coming. It was January of 2020. Okay. So the pandemic happens. And I'm writing this book still, and you have just had a baby. And you actually, you wrote me a really nice email. And I think I waited a minute to respond. And you wrote a follow-up. I just remember coming, I was staying, was quarantined with some people. And I came downstairs and like went outside and was like, you guys, I got this email from Stephanie Dandler, the writer I admire so much. She's so amazing. And I was reading pieces of it. So it's funny how impactful that was. But I didn't really expect to be your friend, to be totally oh my God. honest. No, yeah. no, no, no. That is That took on a whole life of its own. And I think it had something to do with you getting pregnant. And I think it had something to do with you going into the publishing world and a deep dive on your book and not knowing that many writers who you yeah. could just chat with sort of the logistics of the business with. That was huge for me. I remember talking to you when I was going to sell my book and saying, I don't know how you feel about this. But I would like to know what the standards are around money, basically, in publishing. You know, what should agents be commissioning? What is the kind of deal I should be expecting? Can you give me some hard numbers, which... I've talked about before um, publicly how important I think it is for women to talk to each other about what they're making because it's the only way that we can change the salary gap and also advocate for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I was really pleased that you were willing to do that. And I remember that some of your friends who are on the more famous end of the writing spectrum were just like, I don't know. Yes. So I I asked other basically celebrities who had sold their books and they were like, huh, yeah, no, no, I don't know. I was shocked by how little they understood the business, even people who had done really large book deals. Yeah. I think when it's not your main industry, mm-hmm. you probably, it's easier to forget about it, but this is my life. And I take it really seriously to understand how I'm going to be paid, when I'm going to be paid, who is taking what out of my paycheck. And I think that's probably not true for people of their level. Well, this is a perfect segue to you and your career and how you got to be a professional writer, somebody Mm. who writes for a living, who writes books. You also write for TV. You were a waitress. I was. And at Bouvette, I mean, I'm in my old stomping grounds staying with you. And I really put my entire life on the line to write Sweet Bitter. I had been a restaurant professional and in management and managing beverage programs. And I quit everything, went back to waiting tables, and said to my then husband, I just want two years to try to write a book. Just and what age were you? 28, 29. He wanted to have a baby. We were going to open more businesses. And I was like, I'm this close to becoming that woman who sobs at the bar about the life that she didn't have if I don't try. Oof. I mean, it's real. I just so saw real. it. I saw myself in my 40s and my 50s just being like, I had this idea for a book. I never did it. My kids, you know, and I I just didn't want to leave anything on the floor. And so 
I took out a bunch of loans. I went to graduate school. I took it really fucking seriously, which is, you know, when you're having that MFA conversation, I think writers are always like, is the MFA worth it? And it really depends how you do it. How would you say you did it? <laughs> kind of careerist. Right. I mean, I think I had been working for a while, so I was very aware that this time I was giving myself to write it wasn't for experimenting with short stories. It, you know, people would come into class and they'd be like, I wrote something like Cormac McCarthy. And this week I wrote something like Maggie Nelson. And I was like, what are you gonna do with that? Where, where Why you, are you doing that exercise? Yeah, yeah. The, you're wasting your own time and money. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to the bars after, I didn't really make any friends, which was just where I was in my life. I was going through a divorce and I was a bit older than everyone else. Where was your grad school? The new school. Mm, okay, so in New York. Mm-hmm. And I was waiting tables. I mean, I had two jobs. And so I was, a lot of people go to MFA programs on their parents' dime, and which is totally fine if your parents want to send you. It's a beautiful thing. But I really didn't have time to fuck around. And I also was like, this is a tiny window where I have professional writers' attention, my professors. And so I was just like, hello, knock, knock. What's an agent? How do how am I going to get one? Do you know any agents? Can you give me their names? And mm -hmm. so it was basically what I did to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it was a hustle a little bit, yeah. but I will say at the end of the 2 years I had a book and I wow. was like, okay, this is a thing that can be sold. This is something that can hold its weight up against the immense debt that I am now in versus a short story that I would shop to the Paris Review for mm -hmm. the next six years. Yep, and pray that they might one day. Take it and send me mm -hmm. a free issue. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> it's dark, yeah. it's really So you were dark. thinking about it as a career. You, you knew what you wanted to do with your life. You knew that you wanted not only to be a writer for the self-expression and whatever, but you also wanted it to be your living. I did not want to go back to service work. I think by the time I finished Sweet Bitter, I was 30 years old. I was a waitress, I was freshly divorced, and what the fuck am I gonna do? I yeah. spent my entire 20s in this industry. Am I going to go back to restaurant managing, working you know, 60 hours a week on my feet? I felt like I glimpsed another life, and I sold Sweet Bitter shortly after finishing graduate school, which is not the story that most people have. The story of you selling Sweet Bitter has a mythology around it. People love, love the story and yeah. kind of also hate you for it, of honestly. Course. No, it's very Lana Turner at the at Schwab's, you so know? So will you clarify for, this is like very specific, like literary world drama and tea, yeah. but will you clarify for the record um, what exactly happened? It's sure. kind of an amazing story. It is an amazing yeah. story. And I actually think the mythology of it is really important to people, right? Yeah. Like the, the fairy tale part of it, you can't just brush it aside. But I was a waitress at Bouvette and I had an agent and we were going to take the book out. And I was waiting on one of my regulars, Peter Gathers. And I was opening a bottle of wine and I was like, Peter, you're an editor, right? Where do you edit? And he was like, oh, I'm at Penguin Random House. I said, that's crazy because I'm sending out a book and I think I'm sending it to Penguin Random House. And he said, why don't you send it to me? And I was like, sure, I will absolutely send it to you. And I'm thinking this older dude who has been in the publishing industry for a million years, he has such a presence, but I was like, he is not going to respond to my writing about oysters and fucking. Like he's <laughs> going to care zero. Right. He read it in 24 hours and he texted me and said, I want you to know that nothing bad is gonna happen with this book. You should start celebrating. And the following week wow. I was in the office in Knopf in the middle of like a flurry of meetings. And he was like, I wanna acquire this book. I wanna preempt it. And for people who don't know, Knopf is sort of. It's very prestigious. And I think that book really needed it because there were some aspects of that book that if it had been pushed in a more commercial mm -hmm. direction, uh, would have really hurt the book. Well, I think I was, when you said, oh, a book about oysters and fucking, the truth is, is like, yes, it is. But the reason the book is so good is because it's written so well. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's what he responded to. I mean, of course, I think the marriage of commercial material and subject matter with incredible writing is rare. 
I remember being in graduate school. And again, this sounds so careerist, but I was like, I've got something. I've got something that doesn't exist. It's really fucking good. And what would you say it was that didn't exist? Like what was the white space? (laughs) The white space was the restaurant industry from the lens of a young woman. Mm. We had never been outside the kitchen as a culture. We were doing a lot of like Top Chef. We were doing a lot of Anthony Bourdain and April Bloomfield and David Chang as celebrities. But we masculine chef, yeah, Yeah, totally, the the new rock star, totally, and the screaming and the knives and And the tattoos, everything that is on the bear, like that was the culture that I was coming up in, and I thought if I could marry Henry James's portrait of a lady with those details that people can't get enough of, this like behind the scenes of the restaurant world and the drugs and the sex, which is all fucking true, Mm -hmm. I'll have something that I haven't seen before, Um, and really I got to write my my portrait of a lady, mm-hmm. right? It's just yeah. the, it's about the voice of a 22 year old girl who is shallow and wise and making mistakes and filled with d- desire and in love with this city and in love with food. But I knew it was something. And the way she's treated is also so interesting. Yeah, it is interesting because I think we were not talking about uh, workplace sexual politics in the way that we are now. The book is set in 2006. I mean, there weren't HR departments. There was no one to talk to. And I was having sex with my boss and we ended up getting married, but it was very Wild West. It was very like Coke in the bathroom off your wine key knife. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it's like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, just even exploring power dynamics within a restaurant and that space, I mean, that's what that's what I enjoyed so much about Sweet Bitter other than the writing is just thinking about, you know, the hierarchy and the way that all these things outside come into this tiny little world, into this business, and then you bring alcohol into the mix mm-hmm. and you bring in, you know, customers and it becomes this insane culture. A lot of it runs on sex and sexual tension and promise. And I think that there's a flirtation and a performance and a heightened sense of reality that you get at the theater. It's all in a restaurant. And then at the same time, if you are a 22-year-old girl who doesn't know your mind yet, what's that experience? In in my experience, it's being told who you are by a bunch of people, Mm. being told who you are by older women, by a bartender that you're obsessed with, by the sweet guy who really wants to date you. You're you're unformed. You're building a, an identity off of the way you're perceived. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's true for a lot of, I mean, I think all young women. I mean, I can only speak to what it felt like when you're, and you're on display constantly. And so you have the customers and it can be everything from people saying, you look French, are you French? To your boss saying, I really think that you're developing quite nicely. And Oof, like, God. but both of those things are the same kind of objectification. Yeah. Um, and you sort of lean into the objectification a little bit because you're performing and your livelihood depends on that performance, right? I mean, can we talk about how fucked up tips are? Mm. Like as a young woman, you think about the like the pressure of likability and the cult of likability, but you take it into a restaurant setting and it's true of men and women, your literal livelihood depends on how flirtatious, likable, what kind of line you towed with your customer. It's a fucking trip. We're gonna take a break and then we'll be right back with Stephanie. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Of course, I relate to, yeah. you know, that as somebody who was modeling and wanting to be hired for things and 
it's interesting how much that is an experience that women have, even outside of the obvious modeling industry where your your body and your image is commodified. It's like, no, you're commodified in all these different spaces as a woman, and your your physical presence and your likability is considered, and your livelihood is dependent on it. Did Lisa ever tell you the story about Lisa Tadeo? Our mutual friend. Our mutual author friend. Of three women. Everyone should read that. Brilliant writer who I adore forever. Ghost Lover is her new short story collection. I'm just going to shout that out as well. Yep, which Emily and I both adore. But Lisa talks about this flight she had to Singapore and how the man next to her started talking to her and she just wanted to go to sleep and she had like taken her Ambien and she just wanted to go to sleep and she talked to him for 16 hours because she didn't know how to not. To set a boundary and be unlikable Mm -hmm. and exist next to that person after having set that boundary. It was, she would rather torture herself for 16 hours. Absolutely. And I, when she told that story, I was like, this is my entire life. (laughs) When did you know that Sweet Bitter was a hit? When did you know, okay, this is my life is going to actually change? I knew it was a hit when they wanted to pay me real money. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think the average book deal hovers somewhere between thirty and $60,000. And I really never let myself dream of a book deal that would take me anywhere into the six figures. And when I made enough money off of Sweet Bitter to quit waitressing, it's very emotional. I'm just like, I won the lottery. I've been saved. I saved myself. And everything after that has just been a cherry on top, meaning the bestseller run and the touring and the television show. That was the defining moment of my life. I have put my blood, sweat, and tears into this book, and I'm going to be paid. And I thought, I think I was paid fairly, even though it was a lot. And I got a lot of heat because of that, because the discrepancy in book publishing is appalling. Mm -hmm. But that moment. And I told you this when you were writing my body, I was like, you are going to be a writer. No one can take it away from you. A negative review can't take it away. A book that sells 12 copies can't take it away. I'm emotional. (laughs) Yeah. It's the biggest fucking deal. Yeah. And writers are always talking about like what we want and dreaming. And I remain a person who just wants to be able to write. I just want to keep publishing book. I actually I truly don't ever want to publish a book again because I find the experience horrific. You told I, me, you warned me about that too. Yeah, I mean, but you, it's like having a baby. Yeah, you can no, only you can, tell them you, so there's much. No, there's, people don't understand. Also, you being able to come out of waitressing, I feel like this speaks to your second book um, memoir entitled Stray, which is beautifully written, but it is a memoir about your childhood and you did not have a safe space. You did not have a safe childhood. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, definitely. A lot of chaos, a lot of instability. My parents were active addicts um, in my youth and it was very wild. Yeah, it's very wild. And I think that that also speaks to why you were so determined and to use your word careerist when it came Mm -hmm. to writing because you knew you had a skill and you knew if you honed that skill, you could guarantee a certain amount of safety in your life that you hadn't had before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that not having a safety net is one of the graces of my life. As much as I struggle with it now that I'm a mother, wanting to give my children a feeling of safety in the world, my lack of it. I mean, that's why I'm not a drug addict. That's why I praise baby Jesus, have married two nice men in my life, Mm -hmm. not the abusive, terrible men in Mm -hmm. my life. It's why I take mothering so seriously, and it's definitely why I'm a writer. No safety net. No one is going to bail me out. I mean, it's the Nepo baby phenomenon, right? I love that that's finally a term um, about nepotism because we have actually talked about this a lot, how much people with money who were born into money trigger the shit out of us. Mm -hmm. And it's like not something I'm super proud of because sometimes I judge people sort of unfairly just because I know that they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And Mm -hmm. I do have to say though, there's just nothing like that de- survival mechanism, that determination that comes when you don't have a safety net and when you know your life could go one way, that would make you so unhappy. 
what's the thing that people say about trauma and survival instincts is it's both the thing that makes you a superhero and also makes you really troubled. Fragile. <laughs> Fragile. Like in, an, in a whole yes. other way. And I think that was one of the reasons that we got so close so quickly is that there's like an animal inside of us that is really determined to survive. And I think that the best thing that comes out of that, there's lots of downsides, which we can talk about too with Liz, your therapist. Um, <laughs> but the best thing that comes out of that and you are an embodiment of it is the ability to pivot mm -hmm. and also the ability to follow through on things. I cannot tell you how many people have told me I'm gonna write a book and I cannot even imagine how many celebrities are like, yeah, I'm working on a book. Emily fucking finished her book. She well, was pregnant. I she was, was so having, determined yes. because I, you know, one of the things I'm just thinking about right now, I think you were maybe one of the first women I'd met who'd used their brain to survive and succeed. I'd met a lot of women who'd used their bodies, but I don't know if I had known that many women who'd used their brains mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, they guaranteed themselves a certain kind of life and they made money by, by using their brain and by honing a skill like writing. And how well read you are, how determined you are to be an expert and to thrive and make art. Because there is, of course, the instinct to just be an artist and to make things that you're proud of. And I think that really exists within both of us. And mm -hmm. I know that about you. You have always wanted to make things. You are an artist. But you also knew that this could be a way to get you out of the service industry. Yeah. Anytime you talk about commerce and its ap application to art, you're in really thorny, treacherous territory. That, And this is something that you and I have talked a lot about. But nonetheless, it's real. The need to make a living. The, if I want to buy a house, I have to make the money to buy a house. It's not going to fall out of the air. And so generally, we think of any sort of commercial success as a ding against a piece of art's authenticity. And I really, over the years, have changed my mind about that and probably changed my mind because I've become so like bougie and aspirational since mm. having kids. But like <laughs> making art would be enough for me. I, being a teacher would be enough for me. But I do, I want things for my family. I want the ability to travel. I want, I mean- You want to enjoy your life in a certain way. Yeah, and I don't, I grew up so scared of money and I just don't want my kids to be terrified. My mom had such, and it's in the book, it's in Stray. We would go shopping and she would have to pull over on the freeway because she was crying so hard because she was so scared about the money that we just spent. And that lives in me. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to change that story as well as make art. Yes. You are facing the same very practical concerns of like, how do I create the life that I want for myself? No one will give it to me. Yeah. And I have to, I can never rest. Yes. And I I think when I was writing the book and even reaching out to you and other writers, it felt really important to me. I was determined because I knew that the life that I had built through commodifying my image and my body hadn't brought me fulfillment and hadn't brought me power in the way that I like wanted to to be a creator, to be an artist versus a muse. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I did have something to prove and I was so determined. But I mean, that's why I think our friendship or our relationship would have still been very special to me in a different way had I just gotten that you are, if you're asking me, that if you're a writer, you are a writer, <laughs> which is what you wrote to me in the email. Something switched in me, and it stopped being about so much what I had to prove, but it gave me the validation and the confidence to believe that I could use my brain as a way to guarantee a life, and not just as a, you know making money, but as somebody who creates things and makes things and directs. It felt like the most exciting thing and the most hopeful thing I'd ever heard. Yeah, your whole journey is incredibly moving to me thinking about you working on that book and watching the I, I always say that like writers are made during the revision process it's not that thrilling first 20 pages where you're like I'm a fucking genius yeah, here Christ. I go if only it was no and I watched you revise and revise and kill your darlings and cut pages 
And that, that, I didn't know that when I wrote You Are a Writer. I meant you understood how literature works and you understood voice and you understood how to tell a story. But that, you're a writer. I love editing. Yeah. I like being brutal. I like revision. I I like notes. I love taking a note. And I mean, even my own notes. <laughs> it is interesting, that kind of determination and how that coincides with being an artist and making art. I think that's a really, people don't talk about that enough because we are so focused on capitalism and the grind of that versus, you know, I'm just somebody who just, my passion is creating things. And I think it's really refreshing to have a woman in particular talk about how those two things intertwine. Joan Didion actually talked about this where she was like, you start a book and you want to make it perfect. I'm going to butcher this quote. Mm -hmm. You want to make it perfect and then you are on page two and you've already ruined it. It's over and you have to finish it, but you think, okay, the next one will be the perfect one. Mm -hmm. Is that how you feel now writing your third novel? My God, absolutely. And I think I know that quote and I think it's even more granular than that. It's like, Once you make a decision and you write the first sentence, you have lost the platonic form of that book. It's gone forever, whatever you were dreaming about. Then you have to write a second sentence and it's getting narrower and narrower with all of your flaws and inconsistencies and the limits of your character just funneling that book into the degraded form that will go out to the public and you'll be talking about for the rest of your fucking life. (laughs) Well, you were one of the best advice you gave me was when you said a book is a moment in time because I remember I had that moment right before I was turning it in where I was like, I hate it. I think it's all bad. I think I wish everything about it was different. I I'd been working on it for years and I just fucking hated it. I couldn't I, I couldn't believe this. it. I reread it and I was like, I give up. I just it's not good. I don't like any of it. And you were like, listen, sis, <laughs> <laughs> sit the fuck down, shut up. You wrote your book. It's not what you think it is. You're in a moment. But also just accept that it's just never gonna be perfect and it's a moment in time and it's that is what you did right then. Mm -hmm. So looking back at Sweet Bitter and Stray, what's that like to look at those moments in time? I am really proud of Sweet Bitter because I think it built my life. I also spent so many years with it, like between hardback and paperback and then two seasons of the show, I was writing those characters for five years and I have like a lot of empathy for them and I still find delight in thinking about them. And maybe that's one of the privileges of fiction because Stray is this like dark shadow book. (laughs) And I mean that when I try to think about it, when I try to recall a passage, it's obscured Mm. in my brain. I feel like place is such a huge part of that book. It is for practical reasons in that I have a memoir that jumps around in time a lot and you need grounding. You need to know that this is in Laurel Canyon, this is in Colorado, this is in Long Beach. Mm-hmm. And, and you feel those places so much in that book. Yeah, you have you have to or you would be lost because I'm like, it's 1989, it's 2005. So the other character in Stray is the monster. Uh-huh. <laughs> the man I know a lot about, and I'm going to watch myself so that we don't talk too much. But I mean, it was really amazing. So the the book is organized. I, I love Stray, and I just want to say that um, first and foremost. But it's organized as mother, father, monster. Mm-hmm. And the monster is this man that is married and you're having an affair with, mm-hmm. who you're kind of desperately in, in love with. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. kind of- Big um, love of my life. Yes. And- you write about him as a monster, but then the book basically ends with you realizing that you're the monster, mm-hmm. which is so, you're so fucking hard on yourself, which again is something we oh have God. in common. A whole other episode. <laughs> but it's really refreshing how you're hard on other people, but you're really hard on yourself in a way that as your friend makes me want to check you in to um, (laughs) a rehab facility in Switzerland and protect you and like do all kinds of therapy and whatever to make you be less hard on yourself. But she means really, she means non drug and alcohol. No, I mean, (laughs) I mean a rehab where, you know, like a mental rehab. (laughs) Yeah. Where we can like cleanse your soul and your brain. So you're not as hard on yourself, but it makes for really great writing And I think being hard on yourself is an important part of writing because if you're not honest about yourself, then you're not going to be honest about other people. Well, the reader won't trust you, right? I think 
when you're writing a memoir in which you are airing the secrets and pointing out lies and talking about the deep damage of other people, you better be ready to look in the mirror with yourself. And you and I talked a lot about this when you were writing My Body, because yes, there are the men and there are the villains in that book. And I mean that they're true villains, but you also, that entire book is you turning a mirror to yourself, the mirror that you hold up at the very end of the book in the last passage to while you're giving birth. The entire book is a mirror and how have I participated in this system? Why did I participate in this? Am I going to change? Like there's a big ongoing question over my body. And yes, it's hard on myself to be like, I'm the monster, I'm the moron. Who chases a married man for two years? Who believes someone who lies to them over and over and over again. Isn't that like William James's definition of insanity is expecting a different outcome from the same situation? Mm, but, but we do that so often, so frequently. I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. So I guess we're all insane. Totally. Yeah. Magical thinking. Mm -hmm. um, Another thing you and I talk about a lot. <laughs> but <laughs> the end of that book, what freed me was re was taking personal responsibility for what I had done. Mm. As long as I was the victim, I was trapped in a cycle. And the minute I could say, you are doing this to yourself, change became possible. And so that is the most hopeful moment in the book. Yes, a lot of people who love me have been like, that book is so hard on yourself. And I don't think it was at all. I think that it was just very honest about a low point in my life. And I think it's difficult for people who know me and see me. I'm like a high functioning person to hold space that I also contain that. I contain like. I think even how you're putting that is being too hard on yourself. Oh my God. Sorry. This is what she does after two martinis and now she's doing it here. She's like, I'm sorry. listen to me. It's true. I do. I mean, just you even saying like, oh, for people to recognize that I am such a monster. It's like, bitch, shut up. You're not, you're not a monster. We're going to take a break and then we'll be back with Stephanie Danler. Stay tuned for more High Low with M. Radden. Welcome back to High Low with M. Radden. The thing that is important about writing and storytelling is that you are capturing reality as much as you can, which means capturing the subjectivity of reality, which means examining yourself and your perspective so that you can be clear about the lens that you're viewing the world through and your experiences through, right? right? And that in itself is an attempt at objectivity, right? To admit the subjectivity and try to look at that also from the outside. Yes, I mean, that is the memoirist. And I think journalists too. I think that anytime the I is a real character and you're claiming to represent a version of some kind of reality, that's what you're struggling with. Yeah. I have a book of nonfiction that I also sold with Smog that is gonna be like a culinary book about Spain. And my editor was like, just one thing about the Spain book sounds great. Could you just be like less hard on yourself? Can it be a little lighter? Wow. And I was like, oh yeah, no, no, it's just about sherry. <laughs> it's just about drinking. I was gonna say, is that true? I'm pretty sure that's a lie. We'll I'm pretty see. sure it's definitely not about sherry and you're gonna be so brutal and you're gonna be talking about motherhood I and you're gonna be gonna talking- be ta And marriage and motherhood and those are real things. Of course, I mean, that's what's gonna make the book special. So she, she should be careful what she asks for. I've read your book proposal that congratulations on smog. And it is interesting to read you lean into fiction because Sweet Bitter is thinly veiled fiction. I mean, there's so much of you in that book and Sweet Bitter is just you completely raw. Is smog and the desire to write fiction a response to, to Stray or? I think every book you write is a response to the last mm -hmm. thing you did. I think as writers, we want to challenge ourselves. We're like, okay, I did that. What else can I do? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to write a voice that was not a woman on the verge of becoming herself because that is what the last two books have in common. The voices are very different. Tess and Sweet Bitter is a character. She's very young. And Stray is much closer to my nonfiction voice, which is a little bit not as innocent yeah. as the character I was writing in Sweet Bitter. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jaded, whatever you want to call <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, whichever. And I really was smog. I wanted to write a, a, a male point of view. I wanted to write, it's narrated by an old man who I feel like is a part of me mm-hmm. in the way that in Sweet Bitter, I feel like Simone, the 38-year-old waitress, was me completely. And Howard, the predatory manager, was me completely. And that's it. I mean, I'll be interested if you ever try fiction. It's a totally different impulse. But I was a little burned. Nothing bad happened with Stray. It's a lovely book and it has had a beautiful reception. But I'm just like, I'm a little burned by that experience of publishing something so personal. And I don't want to be reductive about it because it's not like, oh, I exposed myself. Like we all expose ourselves online constantly. It's that you are putting it out as a work of art to be judged by others. And I think that you do that and all of a sudden people are like, what is she complaining about? She doesn't have real problems. I can't believe she thinks that her childhood was hard. What is this privileged bitch even talk? And you're just like, oh shit, all of my secret feelings of fraudulence and inadequacy that I had to clomp through Mm -hmm. to write this book are real. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what people are supposed to do. They're supposed to read a book and form an opinion of it. But But when when they're forming an opinion of you. It's very different. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's something that people have talked about a lot around my book. I mean, it's titled My Body because it's written about my experience in my body, which, you know, doesn't mean that I'm factoring in other people's experiences in their bodies. And maybe that book will exist or that piece of writing in the future. But it was definitely... I knew it was actually my greatest fear, but also the thing I knew was going to happen was people saying, God, she's so up her own ass. (laughs) But I also was like, well, that's why I'm going to call it my body (laughs) because (laughs) this is just what my perspective and my experience has been. And there will be moments for me to, to speak to other people's experiences, but I also find that really treacherous and tricky. And I don't like the idea of, you know, even earlier in this conversation, you said very rightly, I think, like, I can only speak to my own experience. And it's difficult because we are white women who have a certain amount of privilege, just even in the way we look and the way we're talking about being a pretty young waitress. And at a restaurant, there's another story where there's a dishwasher who's... Who's an immigrant who can't cash his checks. And I know that story, and it really felt like not mine to tell. And I think there's kind of nothing worse than somebody trying to step in and tell that story for someone else when it's not their position. It really goes well. At the same time, there is something so real and like so white lady about being, but my story. I have become very allergic to it when I go to talks and stuff and I hear people talk about what they want to do to change the world. And a lot of white women say, I just, I'm going to tell my story. And it's something that I understand the instinct to. And I, and by the way, I've seen how it benefits people. Me personally telling my story has benefited people. And yes. they, they come up to me and they yes. tell me what how it's impacted them and their own identity and their own thoughts about whatever. But also, my God, it's like it gives me the heebie-jeebies. I get disgusted, which my therapist, bringing everything back to Liz in this conversation, Hi, always says that disgust is a veil for shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I if you're feeling that. disgusted by something, that means that you're ashamed mm-hmm. by an aspect of it. And that definitely applies here. Yeah, I I have a really hard time with that as well. Melissa Phoebos has an incredible piece in her book, Body Work, and I forget what she titled it, but when she originally published it, it was like in praise of navel gazing. And it was about your your story and your voice and telling it being a radical act, kind of no matter who you are. And I love that essay so much, except when it comes to white women. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. except you guys. Just, and then here we are. Just me. I here mean, we that's are. My, two my two women who have written books, memoirs about their own experiences. I w- but I was about to say that disgust, that shame, that comes back to my own self-hatred. Like, how could you possibly complain mm-hmm. about your life in any way, shape, or form? Well, I don't even see it as complaining. I just think it's like the self-interest can be a little scary and gross. Oh my God. Yeah. And then as a writer, it cripples your work. Yeah. You know, too much of the I, too much of yourself, like it really limits your imagination in a way. And that is why I'm feeling 
so excited to be in fiction again. Mm -hmm. So you're writing fiction. I'm writing fiction. I'm writing TV. I'm writing a feature. Yeah. How do you organize your days plus have two children under the age of four? It's really just like, hang on, because like the roller coaster is taking off and we're going to be on it all day. I try, and this is like a piece of advice I would give aspiring writers, because we all are going to have day jobs and I'm very lucky that screenwriting is my day job after the experience I had making Sweet Bitter. But you need a day, a week, that is not your day job where you are just writing, mm. where you are just daydreaming and maybe reading a couple articles, reading a book for three hours, where you are not making money by writing. And that day is about being in the dream building enough time to get lost in your own thoughts and then think new thoughts mm -hmm. because you just cannot do that when you're on a deadline for something and when you're like producing work as a job, right? When you're producing writing as your means of supporting yourself, it's just not the same. Yeah. I found that so much when I was after Sly was born, but even when I was pregnant, I kept thinking like, oh my God, this will be the last time that I'm able to, you know, not be not with my child instead. You know, that's what motherhood feels like to me a lot of the time. It's like, just remember when, when he's not sleeping. So from seven to seven, basically with his little nap in between, I have this constant feeling of like, I'm choosing not to be with my child. Mm -hmm. So the idea of taking time to daydream mm -hmm. instead of being a mother it's so indulgent and I just don't know when I'm going to get to a point where maybe when he goes to school, but it's so true. When I had writing days, I would spend, I mean, and you've hear, you hear this a million times, but it feels different when it's happening because you just think I'm not being productive mm -hmm. because you're reading a million fucking things. You're staring out the mm -hmm. window. You're like looking at your toenails and whatever. And you've got to, I put my phone away and don't visit social media and, yeah. you know, whatever. So you're trying to allow space for daydreaming, daydreaming. And then, by the way, the end of the day, that is when those, those dreams happen where I'm getting in bed and all of a sudden the sentences start coming. Yep. And it's such an insane process. It feels so, again, self-indulgent. It's just separate from capital. Mm -hmm. It's separate from, it, it's a grind that has no end. Yeah. It has no like end result to spend an entire day so that you can come up with one sentence. But unfortunately, read every single interview in the Paris Review, talk to any writer, that's the gig. Mm -hmm. That is it. You have to be on the train. You have to be lost in thought in the car, in the shower on a walk, there's no shortcut. And it's hard. Daydreaming is, I read a piece about the death of daydreaming mm. in a post iPhone world where we just, every second that we have free, we go to entertain ourselves and go to our phones. And that it's the death of daydreaming. All those moments where you used to wait in line or you'd sit in a car and you had to be with your thoughts, mm -hmm. they just don't exist anymore. So you're just never alone. And I, it's scary to think about. I try, I tr I'm so conscious of that. It's all about thinking new thoughts to me. Like, okay, I've thought all of this about women and the restaurant industry, and I've thought all of this about how we inherit damage from our parents. What is my new thought? Every time we spend time together, I'm always impressed with how your brain works because it's almost like you have a mapping of all these ideas, and then you like carve out your own over here that then like is a side road and comes back. You're, you're very smart, I guess, is what that is. But I see you actively thinking about new approaches mm -hmm. when you Always. are thinking about anything, really, yeah. any idea. And it's, I mean, it's but exciting. It takes, it takes time. It takes it takes not, not hearing anyone else's voices. It takes not being on social media. And there are a lot of good things about social media, but you are being fed versus doing the feeding. Mm-hmm. It's a mode of consumption, not a mode of creation. For me, I know there are lots of people making incredible content out there, mm -hmm. but for me, that's a dead space. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking to you about the things we ended up touching on. I know. A lot of that, we've never talked about Sweet Bitter. Yeah, we haven't, which is funny. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. Thank <laughs> you so much for being here. Thanks for hosting me at your house last I'm night. I'm so happy and hosting me here. me with red wine. Everyone, please go 
check out Stephanie Dandler's writing. The Unravelers is a great piece you can read quickly on Paris Review. And then go buy Sweet Bitter, go buy Stray, check them out. They're incredible. I mean, just the writing alone is just delicious and yummy. And Stephanie is brilliant. So thank you so much for being here. I love you. I love you too. You're biased. No, I'm <laughs> but not. I, I love you very much. That was my dear friend, Stephanie Dandler. There's so much that I wanted to talk about with Stephanie that we didn't even get to because we ran over our time. But that's a kind of a sampling of the conversations we have a lot. I love her and I don't think it'll be the last time she's on the podcast. I'm very curious to hear from you guys about, you know, hearing from a working writer, somebody who's really made it as a writer. I think that's something really special. Making it in a creative field is nothing to scoff at. And I think her story of going from a waitress to grad school to writing Sweet Bitter and and now becoming a mom and what she's doing with her life right now is is really impressive. And I learn a lot from Stephanie all the time. So I hope that you did as well. Subscribe and listen weekly on Amazon Music. And you can even listen on your Amazon Alexa simply by saying, Alexa, play the podcast High Low with Emrata on Amazon Music. Go to hilo.fm to submit your thoughts. If there's anything you wanted to add to the conversation, I incorporate those in my talk back episode, the subscription episode. So don't be a stranger. Submit your thoughts. Thanks so much for listening. High Low with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment, Bitch Era Media, and Something Else production produced by Chelsea Jacobson. Our executive producers are me, Emily Radikowski, and Sarita Wesley. Our senior producer is Medina Parwana, and our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh. Thanks for listening. <laughs>